we're seven. Come on aboard, I promise you, you won't hurt the horse. Treat him well, feed him well. There's lots of room for you on the bandwagon. Hello, welcome to a six-string hayride podcast. A journey through the world of classic country music with your hosts, Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. We will be covering all of the great topics in country music, from mama to prison, to dancing, to drinking, to guitar picking, to all the crazy deal with the devil, hockey talking stuff you do on Saturday night, and how you try to get it past your Lord on Sunday morning. So climb aboard the cart and let's go. Okay, we got to figure out something these people like and fast. Hey, I've got it. Remember the theme from Rawhide? The old favorite, Rowdy Yates. What key? A, good country key. Rawhide and A. On this episode of The Hayride, we're going to talk about Western music, Western culture, singing cowboys, Western TV shows, and take us all back to our youth. Or, in some of our listeners' cases, their parents or possibly even grandparents' youth. For this episode, Jim is actually more of the subject matter expert than I am. He's been listening to this music for his entire life. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Don't let them pick guitars and drive them old trucks. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. I was surprised when we started researching this episode to realize that I knew more than I thought I did and that I remembered more than I would have thought. Mostly I'm just here to provide a little bit of color commentary and point out what these songs and shows mean to me. But Jim's going to take us through the history of this genre, some of its biggest stars, some of its biggest programming, and how all of these came to be. Jim, take it away. Well, folks, it's time to, as the man says, return to those thrilling days of yesteryear. I'm sure most of us, certainly if you're in your late 40s or older, you remember growing up with reruns of things like The Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger. Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring James Arness as Matt Dillon. Bonanza. Rifleman. The Rifleman. The 
starring Chuck Connors. A lot of these shows had gotten started in the radio era in the 1930s and 40s and were the first batch of stories that made the successful switch to television. In 1949, The Lone Ranger is the first of these stories to make a successful switch to television. Through the 50s and the 60s, you get things like Gunsmoke, Maverick. Who is the tall, dark stranger there? Maverick is the name. Riding the trail to who knows where. Luck is his companion. Gambling is his game. Smooth as a handle on a gun, Maverick is the name. Have Gun, Will Travel, The Rifleman, Wanted Dead or Alive. We get Bonanza and Gunsmoke wind up being among the longest-running programs in American television. And then into the 80s, you get Lonesome Dove. And now, in the present day, we have a program called Yellowstone, that is on TV. The Western story has times when it's not as popular in the entertainment world, but there's always a time every few years where a cowboy or a Western story keeps popping up and you get a hit TV show, you get a band that goes back to that Western tradition, you get a good movie. He's bound and down, loaded up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm East Pounders, what no bandit run. The 1990s, the big revival of the American Western was Clint Eastwood with Unforgiven. You better clear out of there. Yes, sir. Just hold it right there. Hold it! Cowardly son of a bitch. You just shot an unarmed man. Well, he should have armed himself. He's going to decorate his saloon with my friend. It's something that's not going to go away. Which brings up the obvious question, well, how did it start in the first place? Here at the Hayride, and I think a lot of people who comment on and study American music note 1927 as the starting point for what we pretty much consider to be country music. Uh, this is marked by Ralph Peer and the Victor Talking Machine, literally the machine, uh, going into Bristol and recording folks like the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers. But I found out last Monday that Bob got locked up Sunday. They've got him in the jailhouse way downtown. He's in the jailhouse now. He's in the jailhouse now. But way before this, in 1844, out west, and this is before the American Civil War, so there's more territories and states out that way. But in 1844, we have sheet music published for a song called the Blue Juniata. The Blue Juniata is a river. Uh, it's a story of an Indian girl running out of the village, going to hide by the river, waiting to meet the secret boyfriend. 
this becomes a real popular story structure through pop and, and rock and country and rockabilly. You know, face it, all music. You know, Forbidden Love, it's the old Romeo and Juliet bit. And in 1844, this is published as sheet music and widely considered to be the first Western song on record. In 1908, we get a fellow named H.J. Thorpe who compiles a list of lyrics and poems without music called Songs of the Cowboys. Very quickly in 1910, John Lomax follows up with his book, Frontier Ballads. Much like the work of A.P. Carter in the 1920s, these guys, and well before Carter's time, were out gathering poems, songs, folk stories, legends, things that dealt with the gold rush in California. Now don't you remember sweet Betsy from Pike who crossed the big mountains with her lover Ike two yoke of oxen a big yellow dog, a tall Shanghai rooster, and one spotted hog. Things that dealt with the cowboys. Keep rolling, 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 though the streams are swollen. Keep them doggies rolling, right. Through rain and wind and weather, hell bent for leather, wishing my gal was by my side. Outlaws. All the federalists say they could have had him any day. They only let him slip away. Out of kindness, I suppose. Famous lawman. constant topics in western music the beauty the landscape the natural resource that was the unexplored american western frontier at that time you don't get a song like happy trails or home on the range or don't fence me in unless you're out there looking at you know again just majestic natural beauty just sing a song and bring the sunny way Happy trails to you Till we meet again And the antelope play Where seldom is heard A discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy country that I love don't fence me in let me be by myself in the evening breeze listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees send me off forever but I ask you please don't we all know the very easy and common joke about country and western music oh we have both kinds country and western 
What kind of music do you usually have here? Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. Like all really good jokes, there is a current of truth underneath all that. Western music is and has always been very different in its basic approach from Eastern country music. Uh, certainly, we have a difference in the time. We're noticing very measurable, recognized moments in Western music in the mid-1800s and in the early 1900s. Before we get to that Ralph Peer date in 1927, which is, of course, on the East Coast, the real key difference in the two types of music is certainly the ethnic influence on that local geography with the Appalachian music, with Tennessee music, Kentucky music. You have a lot of Irish influence. You have a lot of Scottish influence. You have folk music and fiddle music that comes through Appalachia and into the the Southern United States out West you do have the fiddle tradition and you have the Scottish and the Irish tradition making its way across the country. But at that point, the fiddle music passes through Louisiana and takes on a French influence. The music overall passes through Texas and takes on a border influence that includes traditional Mexican music and that introduces the accordion. first instruments it really sets a difference between eastern and western country music this idea of eastern and western in a type of music that's pretty common throughout all types of music uh, we've noticed british blues bands and american blues bands british pop american pop in the early days of doo-wop you had guys from brooklyn guys from the bronx guys from the queens all in new york city that would go to each other's neighborhoods and literally have singing doo-wop battles, you know, neighborhood competition. In Eastern country music here in America, we have a mentality, a culture that's very much defined by the Carter family, home, hearth, faith, family, the unbroken circle. In Western music, the key philosophical distinction, the, the point of view that shapes the songwriting and the storytelling, I think is best summed up in a line from the song Tumbling Tumbleweeds. It's not mama and the unbroken circle. It's lonely but free I'll be found. Lonely but free I'll be found Drifting along with a tumbling tumbleweeds of the past are behind drifting with the tumble and tumbleweeds it's a great record but that's really the difference the east coast music is home and hearth and faith the west coast is the open frontier the undiscovered country the rugged individualism and that's something that really drives the storytelling and certainly that gunfight tradition you know good guy against bad guy man against man it's 
in sports culture in America today, people describe this as the best part of baseball, the pitcher and the batter facing off. In Western mythology, it's, you know, the sheriff and the bad guy that notches on the belt. And the swiftness of the ranger is still talked about today. Texas red and not cleared leather for a bullet fairly ripped. And the ranger's aim was deadly with the big iron on his hip. Big iron on his hip. The inevitable, we went over this in the murder ballot episode, somebody's going to pay for what they did wrong. So you mentioned the differences between Eastern Eastern American country music and Western American country music. And as you and I were discussing prior to starting to record, probably the most famous example of this, at least in the modern day, would be the East-West rap culture, battle, war, whatever you want to call it, uh, East Coast versus West Coast. But if you really think about it, there's almost always been some sort of schism within various factions of the music industry. Perhaps a more modern country example would be when you had the Nashville sound versus the Bakersfield sound. Uh, You could take American pop versus British invasion pop. You can really take just about any genre that you want to, and you're going to find some sort of battle. And maybe some of that's just manufactured by the record companies to sell more records. I don't know. But I do know that those are the kinds of things that fans certainly latch on to and have a preference for. Right. The way you're noticing these geographical and, and attitude differences, the simplest way to look at this and kind of the simplest way that uh, people would talk about this in a cultural studies course is look at a map of the continental U.S., the 48 states. The Mississippi River cuts a really nice line down the older part of the country versus the newer part of the country. Uh, kind of dividing into halves and the east coast has always been more people less space it's the part of the country that was originally settled west of the mississippi the phenomena has been the opposite a lot more space a lot less people and i think again that makes the starting point for a lot of these cultural discussions a real obvious place to start i agree Also, I think I'm going to take this moment to give a shout out to one of my better enjoyed and yet more obscure in today's culture groups, and that's the Andrews Sisters. You mentioned Don't Fence Me In a minute ago, and they actually have an amazing version of Don't Fence Me In with Bing Crosby. So I know they're not technically country. They're certainly Americana in their own way. And anytime I get a chance to mention them, I'm going to talk about the Andrews Sisters. Just turn me loose, let me straddle my old saddle underneath the western sky. On my cayuse, let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. You know, 
that if you hear anything that you have more information on for us or disagree with us on or just want to give us a high five on, you can email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. And that's not, that's not the number six. It's six spelled out. I'd also like to say that you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sixstringhayride. Once again, the six is spelled out, and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And lastly, look us up on Facebook, Six String Hayride. Like and follow our page. You're going to see a lot of clips that we put on there from the things we talk about on the episodes. You're going to see things that go on there just that caught our fancy at the time. You're always going to enjoy what you see on our Facebook page. And if you don't, well, you have our email address. Let us know. Well, despite Western music having roots and published records of it going back into the 1800s, and then these two volumes of collected poems and lyrics that come out in the early 1900s, Western music really becomes the thing that we know and love today in the 1930s. And much like with the 1927 East Coast origins of country music, you have Jimmy Rogers as kind of an individual hero star type figure in the music. And then as a group, you have the Carter family. Well, 10 years or so later out West, you get the emergence of a band that really pushes, innovates and pioneers some wonderful, unique developments in the music in Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. Somebody we have not talked about that much would be the West Coast version of the Jimmy Rogers role in the music development. And that brings us to the man himself, Gene Autry. I'm back in the saddle again Out where a friend is a friend where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly Jimson wheat, back in the saddle again. Gene Autry is born in 1907 in Texas. His name at birth is Orvin Grover. And his dad's name is Delbert, and his mom's name is Elnora. So young Orvin Grover winds up becoming Gene Autry. Gene Autry really sets the precedent for what you would find later in people like Frank Sinatra and then Elvis Presley, where you have somebody who starts out as a singer, a musician, and winds up becoming kind of an industry all to themselves. Certainly the Elvis career in the 1960s, where he's kicking out movie after movie and playing a certain type of character. The movies have a certain kind of formula to them. 
that's really something that started in the 1930s with the Gene Autry movies. Uh, Autry himself gets started when he's 18, he leaves home and he goes to Oklahoma and he gets a job in a telegraph station and he's working a lot of nights. So he sits there, he sings, he's teaching himself guitar. And one day the great American writer and humorist, Will Rogers walks in and they start up a conversation. Rogers steers Gene Autry towards getting some work in the entertainment business Autry winds up in that 1930s hotbed of country music, Chicago, Illinois, on WLS radio, working for uh, the National Barn Dance broadcast. This is really the only major radio program that competes with the Opry coming out of Nashville. Uh, Chicago was the other big, powerful radio station at the time, and Autry and later on, Patsy Montana. I want to be a cowboy sweetheart. I want to learn to rope and to ride. I want to ride o'er the plains and the desert, out west of the great divide. I want to hear the coyotes howling while the sun sinks in the west. I want to be a cowboy their start doing western and cowboy music on the radio at WLS. Autry is a huge Jimmy Rogers fan. And when Autry is beginning his career, Rogers is still alive, still working. The very early Gene Autry stuff sounds pretty much like a Jimmy Rogers impersonation. Autry had tried to make this fly as his musical identity in 1928. He does go to New York and he does audition for the Victor Talking Machine Company. And they very politely tell him, you do a great Jimmy Rogers, but there's already a Jimmy Rogers. You're a talented guy. Why don't you go you know, work on doing your own thing? Get back to us when you think you have something new to offer. Well, in 1932, he finally gets to that point and he comes out with an original composition that's silver-haired daddy of mine in a vine covered shack in the mountain bravely fighting the battle of time is a dear one whose weathered last sorrow is that silver-haired daddy of mine Autry's first hit. It's his original songwriting. It definitely takes him away from that Jimmy Rogers impersonation routine. And it becomes part of an incredible list of songs that Autry is associated with over the years. He winds up recording 640 songs over his career. 300 of them are his own compositions. And if you look at a list of songs that Gene Autry is known for, you're really looking at a solid couple pages of the American Standard Songbook. Silver Haired Daddy of Mine, Yellow Rose of Texas. She's the sweetest rose of color this fellow ever knew. Her eyes are bright as diamonds, they sparkle like the dew. You may talk about your dearest maids and sing of Rosalie. But the yellow rose of Texas beats the bells of Tennessee. Last roundup. 
tumbling tumbleweeds, Mexicali Rose, take me back to my boots and saddle. Let me see that general store. Let me ride the range once more. Give me my boots and saddle. Down Mexico Way, back in the saddle, you are my sunshine. Deep in the heart of Texas. The coyotes wail along the trail. Deep in the heart of Texas. The rabbits rush around the brush. Deep in the heart of Texas. And another one of his original compositions, if all the cowboy stuff wasn't enough, Gene Autry is the guy that writes, Here Comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Dixon and Blixon and all his reindeers pulling on the reins. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. So hang your stockings and say your prayers, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. And the royalties alone from that uh, took care of the man well into his retirement. He, as we mentioned, becomes kind of an industry unto himself because later on, he goes to Republic Pictures, the company he had worked with during his heyday, and as they're failing financially, he buys all the rights and all the master copies of his music and his movies back puts him in control of his catalog. He buys quite a few radio stations. And when Major League Baseball wants to have a second team in Southern California, he becomes the original owner of the Anaheim Angels, who I think now are just called the Los Angeles Angels. But that Angels baseball team in Anaheim, that's Gene Autry's work right there. And uh, Chris, I know you've listened to a lot of this music. You've been watching some of the movies lately. What's some of the fun stuff about why Gene Autry is an artist still worth getting into? It's interesting. You mentioned him writing Here Comes Santa Claus. When I was a kid, what I didn't realize is who all these recordings were by, but as we started doing research for this episode, I started realizing, well, of course I knew here, here comes Santa Claus is a Gene Autry song. You still hear it every year at Christmas, but other songs that you hear a lot as a kid, he does a version of Rudolph, the red nosed reindeer. Uh, and while it's not the version that is on the TV special, I believe that was sung by Burl Ives. It is the version that you still hear the most at Christmas. Rudolph, the red nosed reindeer. Had a very shiny nose And if you ever saw it You would even say it glows All of the other reindeer Used to laugh and call him names that surprised and impressed me when we started preparing for this episode was how much of this stuff I knew. So it was clearly buried back in my consciousness somewhere. Um... I recently watched Back in the Saddle again, and I realized that I knew almost every song from the film. I mean, of course, he does a version of You Are My Sunshine and that, so there's stuff that you're going to know not just from there. But a lot of the songs in that movie, just immediately I realized I still knew the lyrics to, even though I probably hadn't intentionally listened to them in decades. 
to me when I was younger, who Gene Autry really was, was the owner of the Anaheim Angels. I read a lot of sports biographies and autobiographies when I was younger, and it seemed like you know, any player for the Angels or who had played for the Angels, they all seemed to have stuff to say about Gene Autry. And to a person, it was all positive reviews. I don't recall anyone in particular saying anything negative about Autry, which certainly was not the case for most of the owners that these guys played for. Keep in mind that at the point in time when Autry first takes over the Angels, or I guess I shouldn't say takes over the Angels, when the Angels first come into being as a result of his efforts to get an expansion team located there, this is predating free agency in sports. So we're not talking about guys who are making multi-million dollar contracts to play a game. We're talking about people who are essentially caught up in a modern day indentured servitude system in which they play for the guy who quote unquote owns them or they don't play at all. They can't choose to just go play for someone else if they don't want to play for their current owner. They can't demand a trade. They can't do any of those things. So the fact that most of what I recall reading about him when I was younger was positive says a lot about the man. I'll also give you just about my favorite piece of Gene Autry trivia ever, and it connects very well to the theme of this podcast. So Johnny Cash records a song in 1978 called Who is Gene Autry? Why he could ride his horse and play his guitar and sing all at the same time. And I was riding right along there beside him on that broomstick pony of mine. And you know, his pistol never ran out of bullets when the bad guys had to be stopped. And he gets Autry to actually sign uh, his Martin, his black Martin D35 guitar. So for people who may not be familiar with that guitar, that's the one that Johnny plays in the video for Hurt that we're all familiar with and that we've all talked about so many times. So to me, Gene Autry was more of the businessman when I was younger. It's only recently that I've truly become to appreciate what he did for music and children's music and popular music at the time. Uh, but again, you, you know, this is a guy who go on whatever, you know, I say this all the time, go on whatever streaming service you use, go on YouTube, go anywhere you want to go and just type in Gene Autry songs. And you're going to be blown away by how many of these you realize that, you know, as you go to your home by the ocean, May you never forget those sweet hours that we spent in the Red River Valley and the love we exchanged with the flowers. Oh, I'm thinking tonight of my blue eyes who is sailing far over the sea. Oh, I'm thinking tonight of my blue eyes And I wonder if she ever thinks of me She was a picture in old Spanish lace And for a tender while I kissed the smile upon her face 
for it was fiesta and we were so gay south of the border down mexico well listeners a little bit more about gene autry uh the guy uh very different from certainly bob wills the other big pioneer in western music and quite a few other musicians gene gets married in 1932 and him and his wife stay married until 1980 when uh, she passes away. A uh, few other things about Gene Autry. Like a lot of older celebrities from his era, uh, he was a registered Republican, but he's one of the few of these old school, mostly conservative celebrities who then comes out as a huge advocate of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. In Autry's movies, one of the exceptions to Westerns of this early era is the women characters in the Gene Autry movies are not tied up and screaming and waiting to be rescued. They're as much getting into the barroom brawl as Gene or anybody else. They're typically more independent and a lot more active in the story than the whole damsel in distress type thing. There's never a Gene Autry movie where you see him untie a lady from the train tracks and see the villain twirl their mustache. It's They're not those kind of stories. They have a little more heft to them. What makes these things unique as Westerns is they're set in the present. These are not stories of the 1800s and the Indians. These are cowboy stories set in the 1930s and 1940s Gene Autry plays himself. He makes about 90, 95 movies uh, during his classic run. And in all of them, he plays Gene Autry. He sells over 100 million records as kind of tie-ins with the movies. He gets his big start in film in 1935. It's one of those kind of Buck Rogers adventure serials. It's called The Phantom Empire. And he plays a singing cowboy country star named Gene Autry, who accidentally stumbles upon a strange and evil under the earth kingdom. And he goes down there, he fights the aliens. You see the string holding up the rocket ship and he defeats the aliens and then gets back up to the earth's surface just in time to do his radio show from the melody ranch, which is where he sings. Um, from 1936 to 1942, he is the top box office draw in the United States. From 1943 to 1945, like a lot of other celebrities, he is in the Air Force during World War II. He's an actual proper pilot, and he flies supply routes uh, throughout these two years in World War II, mostly in the Pacific. From 1947 to 1953, he's back to work here in the States, and he's the number two box office draw during that era. Uh, his long relationship with Republic Pictures ends in 1947. Gene is insisting on more money. He's insisting on more creative control, more script control, more control over the music. And Republic says, nah, we'll find somebody cheaper and, you know, somebody who's willing to go along with the studio plan. This is where the name Roy Rogers comes into the cowboy entertainment world. Gene leaves Republic. He's been there for about 12, 13 years. 
He's definitely a top earner, definitely an incredible musician, and they want to replace him with somebody who's going to take orders and work on the cheap. So they go to Sons of the Pioneers, the great cowboy group of this time. They pick the prettiest member, a guy named Leonard Sly. They say, Leonard, your new name is Roy Rogers, and you're going to be the replacement Gene Autry. And from this music lover's point of view, folks, that's really all he ever amounts to is a replacement Gene Autry. Roy Rogers is a pretty face. He looks good in the cowboy outfit. He's got an okay singing voice. But the other thing he's most known for, aside from being the hired studio goon to replace Autry, is his signature song, Happy Trails. Happy Trails, written by his wife, the very talented and lovely Dale Evans. So Roy is mostly known for putting on the hat, smiling, and getting by off of other people's work. That might be harsh. That's just my opinion. But I'm kind of in the Gene Autry camp over here. Uh, The man's influence is extraordinary. The influence not just on music, on film, but on the way business is run up to and including expanding baseball, owning radio stations. He's one of the first big stars of the 1930s to buy back control of his own work and his own catalog. He lives to a ripe old age. It's it's a great story, and it's backed up by great storytelling and a lot of great music. And, you know, maybe a couple of other things we should point out before we leave uh, Gene Autry and move along. Uh, first of all, the reason he loved baseball so much, he had actually turned down the chance to play minor league baseball at one point when he was younger. He wound up owning a or being part owner of a minor league team in Hollywood. So there was a real strong baseball connection. This wasn't just some rich guy trying to get richer. It was a true fan who loved the sport who wanted to expand it. Another fun fact, if you look up Gene Autry on the charts, something that you're going to notice is that every few years, he re-enters the charts because of some of his Christmas songs. As recently as 2022, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer makes number 28 on the pop charts, and Here Comes Santa Claus makes number 25. Now, granted, there's a little bit of a gimmicky aspect to that, since a lot of radio stations do change their format to play Christmas music uh, in November and December, or just December. Nevertheless, that's a testament to the man's staying power. You know, these are the songs that are not only getting repopularized amongst the Christmas music genre, but they're making it into the pop charts. So the man left a lasting legacy. There's no question of that. Also, I'm pretty sure if it ever came to a fight, champion's going to beat the hell out of trigger. Just a theory, just a theory. The two really notable aspects of Autry's legacy in Western films Uh, there's two things really overall he creates an audience and the the movie studios pick up on this that you know there's an audience out there for cowboy and for western movies and the way that that becomes a big part of american cinema really starts with the fact that gene autry demonstrated that this type of storytelling could be wildly successful 
for its artistic quality and for its business opportunity benefits. The other thing that Autry movies give us in terms of the story structure and the, and the modern storytelling device is the idea of the sidekick. This is absolutely crucial in Western stories and nowadays in adventure or science fiction stories. This is something that goes back to Don Quixote, uh, written by Miguel Cervantes in 1605. The original sidekick is a guy named Sancho Panza. He is humorous relief. He is kind of an earthy wisdom, a little bit of realism to balance out the hero's idealism. He is loyal. He is hardworking. He is willing to sacrifice He's pretty much a human Swiss army knife that works around the needs of the hero. Autry in his movies brings us that in the brilliant character actor and musician, Smiley Burnett. He is funny when he needs to be. He's sympathetic, loyal, and sacrificing when he needs to be. He does funny voices. He pretty much gives the hero a, a platform to shine from. And if you look at modern storytelling um, in film and in Western, we get that in, in the most perfect way possible with the character of Tonto in the Lone Ranger stories. He literally saves the Lone Ranger's wife, notices that he is now, in fact, the Lone Ranger. But when Cavendish gang know you escape ambush, you marked man, they hunt you down, many against one. No one is going to know I'm alive. I'm supposed to be dead, and I'm going to stay that way. I'll hide my identity somehow. I'll wear a disguise of some sort. You mean like mask? That's it, Tunnel. From now on, I'll wear a mask. Let me have the mask. There. It fits perfectly. Good job, Tunnel. Here hat, me washing stream, dry in sun, make whiter. Thanks, Tonto. Here gun to kill bad men. I'm not going to do any killing. You not defend yourself? Oh, I'll shoot if I have to. But I'll shoot to wound, not to kill. A man must die, it's up to the law to decide that. Not the person behind a six-shooter. That's right, Kimosabi. Only you, Tonto, know I'm alive. The world, I'll be buried here, beside my brother and my friends, forever. You all alone now, last man. You are a lone ranger. Yes, Tano. I am a lone ranger. Kimosabe, me help you fight outlaw. But Tano, don't you have a family? Anyone? No, me lone like you. Me want law here too, for all. All right, Tonto. You'll be a lot of help. We'll ride together. And Tonto is a character that provides the hard work, the behind-the-scenes stuff, a lot of the thinking, a lot of the problem-solving, again, setting the stage for the hero to shine. Um, there's a ton of excellent examples of that in storytelling. Who would rather be Mr. Spock than Captain Kirk? As a teacher... On a training mission, I am content to command the Enterprise. If we are to go on actual duty, 
it is clear that the senior officer on board must assume command. It may be nothing. Garbled communications. You take the ship. Jim, you proceed from a false assumption. I am a Vulcan. I have no ego to bruise. You're about to remind me that logic alone dictates your action? I would not remind you of that which you know so well. I would not presume to debate you. That is wise. In any case, were I to invoke logic, logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. You are my superior officer. You are also my friend. I have been and always shall be yours. Who would find more fun in being Chewbacca than Han Solo? Laugh it up, fuzzball. Who would find more fun in being Keith Richards compared to Mick Jagger? Uh, Mick and I were both aware of it, and I think probably the rest of the Stones, uh, in a way, but I know that Mick and myself were well aware. get the fantastic Samwise Gamgee, one of, again, one of the ultimate sidekicks. The what we need is a few good taters. What's taters, Brussels? What's taters, huh? Potatoes. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Lovely big golden chips with a nice piece of fried fish. The sidekick roll I think is secretly the more fun role to have. You don't always get the girl, but you get the great lines, you get the great jokes, and you are loyal and dependable in a way that you're really the audience's bridge into the world of the hero. The The audience gets into the story through the sidekick. Uh, and again, we've listed some great ones over the years. I'm sure everybody has their favorites. Uh, it's just a big key part of this type of storytelling, and it's something that becomes a constant in cinema with these Gene Autry movies. And if you're Samwise, you might even get a second breakfast to make up for not getting the girl. Yeah, you know, if you get more, a little more bacon on the side or some salted right. pork, a few extra pints. Yep, Frodo's over there deal. banging on what's-her-name, but I got this bacon and some biscuits <laughs> and gravy. Well, folks, uh, we all know from recent episodes that both Chris and myself are keen to give suggestions, recommendations, endorsements, and lists of all lengths and all types. Let's keep this sweet, simple, and fun. Uh, we know that the American Western is a big, big genre in storytelling and certainly in cinema. It is... You know, like older cultures, we don't have the Odyssey and, and the Iliad and those types of things. We have the American West because it presents an idealized version of man versus nature, of the individual overcoming the odds, those types of heroic stories. Like adventure stories where there's an Obi-Wan Kenobi or a Gandalf the Grey. Uh, in Harry Potter, it's Dumbledore. 
All the way back to the King Arthur stories, you have Merlin, a magical figure who advises the hero. In Western stories, that role is almost always served by the town doctor. He is older than the sheriff, older than the gunfighter, older than the whatever hero you have. He is not necessarily good with a gun, but his wisdom and his experience and the fact that he's the oldest guy in a Western town means that he has some intelligence and survival skills beyond the average town folk. And that type of wizard or intelligent advisor character that we get much later, you know, in things like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, you get really developed in the American Western. So really quickly, if you are a fan of the American Western, you really need to look into the great director, John Ford. John Wayne, the actor, it, to my taste, pretty much the same thing all the time, except when he works with John Ford. You get from 1956, The Searchers. It's considered one of the greatest movies ever, not just Westerns. From the thrilling pages of life rides a man you must fear and respect. A man whose unconquerable will and boundless determination carved a lusty, rough, and boisterous slice of history called The Searchers. It's John Wayne as Ethan Edwards who had a rare kind of courage. The courage that simply keeps on and on, far beyond all reasonable endurance, never thinking of himself as martyred, never thinking of himself as brave. So we'll find him in the end, I promise you. We'll find him. Here is a story of a man, hard and relentless, tender and passionate, of people who dared to challenge a hostile land. Here is drama of great love and aching loneliness. Looks like you got yourself surrounded. Yeah, and I figure on getting myself unsurrounded. Let's go! You get the Cavalry trilogy with She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Fort Apache, and Rio Grande. These are movies between 1948 and 1950, again with John Ford as the director. And then you get the incredible Jimmy Stewart with John Wayne, 1962, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. From there, I would recommend the great director John Sturgis with Gunfight at the OK Corral from 1957, Kurt Douglas and Burt Lancaster. Wilder, wilder, brave, courageous, and bold. Long live his fame and long live his glory and long may his story be told. And then my personal favorite all-time Western, The Magnificent Seven. Steve McQueen, Yul Brenner, Charles Bronson, James Coburn, Eli Wallach is a great villain. How many of you did they hire? Enough. There are lots of new wolves all around. Uh-huh. 
They won't keep me out. They'll build to keep you in. You hear that? We're trapped! All 40 of us, by these three. Or is it four? They couldn't afford to hire more than that. We'd come cheaper by the bunch. Five? Even five wouldn't give us too much trouble. There won't be any trouble if you ride on. Ride on? I'm going into the hills for the winter. Where am I going to get the food for my men? Buy it or grow it. Or maybe even work for it. Seven. Somehow I don't think you've solved my problem. Solving your problems isn't our line. We deal in lead, friend. 1953 gives us Shane. We have Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from 1969. We have Clint Eastwood with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly from 1966. Fistful of Dollars from 1967. And he creates the great modern updating of an old Western in 1992 with Unforgiven. I'd also recommend the Coen brothers take on True Grit from 2010. And you can never go wrong with Mel Brooks from 1974 and Blazing Saddles. This is just a quick look at some of the Westerns that we love here at the Hayride. These are fantastic movies. Take a beverage, take an evening, and go for the ride. It's really, really great storytelling. And the achievement in the photography in a lot of these movies, certainly the John Ford movies, if you want to see beautiful landscape, uh, it's referred to as Monument Valley. And a lot of the Ford movies are filmed there. They're just really great to look at. I'd like to add one film quickly to the list, and that would be 1993's Tombstone. Now, it doesn't have a high-powered director like a John Ford. Uh, it was directed by a man by the name of George P. Cosmatos. I Something on your mind? Just want to let you know you're sitting in my chair. <laughs> Is that a fact? Yeah, that's a fact. Well, for a man that don't go healed, you run your mouth kind of reckless, don't you? No need to go healed to get the bulge on a tub like you. Is that a fact? Hmm. That's a fact. Well, I'm real scared. Damn right you're scared. I can see that in your eyes. All right, man, go ahead. Go ahead, skin it. Skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. 
Listen, mister, I'm, I'm getting awful tired of your... I'm getting tired of your gas. Now jerk that pistol and go to work. <coughs> I said throw down, boy. Oh. You gonna do something or just stand there and bleed? I honestly, I'm sure I've probably watched something else he's made. Maybe, I don't know, who knows? This is the only film I know him for, but I love Gunfight at the OK Corral, and yet I consider Tombstone to be far and away the definitive story of Wyatt Earp. I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your huckleberry. Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Fight's not with you, Holiday. I beg to differ, sir. We started the game we never got to finish. <clears throat> Play for blood, remember? I was just fooling about. I wasn't. This film has a powerhouse cast. Uh, we're talking Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp. Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday. We have Sam Elliott as Virgil Earp. Bill Paxton as Morgan Earp. It features stars like Powers Booth, Michael Biehn. Charlton Heston has a small role in this. Jason Priestley, who, though we may make fun of him here and there, at the time was a pretty big star. We have Thomas Hayden Church, Dana Delaney. All powerhouse names, people with sizable careers. It's got Robert Mitchum doing some of the narration. Uh, so yeah, these are our recommended Westerns. The success of these type of stories over the years, and then the advent of television as an invention and as a more common household item from the late 40s through the 1950s, then takes all this crazy stuff, the, the Western movies, the mythology, the storytelling, the Gene Autry tradition, and all of that gets dumped into the little screen in your living room. So we're going to move on now to a discussion of some of those programs and the theme songs that get stuck in your head because this was just a great era in storytelling for television. When it comes to Westerns on TV, uh, there are still a few. Jim touched on Yellowstone, which, although not a classic gunfighter cowboys on horses you know riding on the railroads 1800s western is certainly a modern day western show at one point though it seems like westerns just dominated what was on the air Come any faster than Billy the Kid. So you're Billy the Kid, huh? <laughs> Hubert, how many times have I told you to quit playing gunslinger? That's Billy the Kid, Now, Ma. in 1949, 
Hopalong Cassidy becomes what's widely thought of as the first Western show on TV. Uh, I learned earlier that's not actually true. There is another show called Front Row Center, which predates it uh, by a few months. Front Row Center comes out in March of 1949, Hopalong Cassidy in June of 1949. But it does turn out that Hopalong Cassidy is the first network TV show that's a Western. However, I would agree with Jim's earlier assessment that The Lone Ranger certainly becomes the most successful earliest program after having crossed over from radio. And so to tell us a little bit about a man who he shares a hometown with and what that man meant and who was that masked man, Jim. Fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty Hayo Silver. The Lone Ranger. Hayo Silver! Away! With his faithful Indian companion Tonto, the daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains, led the fight for law and order in the early West. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. The Lone Ranger rides again. <laughs> Well, folks, uh, Chris is right. This was a big radio phenomena. There were a few different types of programs that tried to move from radio to television in the late 1940s. The Lone Ranger is really the one that wound up with the staying power and, and the one that people still recall quite easily today. Uh, in terms of the character himself, that daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains is the invention of a station manager and a copywriter at a radio station in Detroit, Michigan in 1933. And if you think about it, folks, where these things fit in on the calendar, um, you have the Lone Ranger and a few other cowboy shows coming up in the 1930s on the radio. You have the big Gene Autry era in music and film in the 30s and 40s. The United States during that point is going through the Great Economic Depression, the environmental crisis of the Dust Bowl, and then entry into World War II. So that idea of some manufactured nostalgia or mythology to go back and look at that can-do spirit and that rugged individualism, that's a big part of how you get a culture through things like global economic depression and another world war now i have a little song here which i understand is one of president roosevelt's favorites and i'm going to dedicate it to him it's the yellow rose of texas oh, yeah, so in the late 1940s and early 1950s when you get this as a television phenomena it's not the depression anymore, but it's the legacy of World War II, the threat of nuclear war, the Cold War, and the very tense political situation with the young Soviet Union. The 1950s is a time for the Americans and the Europeans to have to, well, really to be forced to grapple with the idea that nuclear weapons now exist in our world. In the United States, you also have a lot of racial upheaval at this time because the push for civil rights between blacks and whites 
is gaining a lot of momentum. It's long overdue by the 1950s, but it's really an emerging social force that forces a lot of people to stop and think about you know, what they value, what they fear, and how they want to proceed as a group with each other. You also have the American interstate road system, the highway system being built in the 50s. So we can literally hop in the car and drive out west uh, and getting into the nostalgia or the romanticism of doing it in a covered wagon or on horseback with Gary Cooper and, and John Wayne once you're in your car and you can actually do it yourself, that really feeds into those kind of ideas and storytelling and entertainment. If you ever plan to motor west, travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. I get your kicks on Route 66. It winds from Chicago to L.A. So, yeah, the Lone Ranger is a creation of a radio station in Detroit in 1933. And in 1949, it comes onto TV. And the role of the Lone Ranger is placed in the hands of, you know, to this point, the only man who's proven that he could do it. Chicago-born Clayton Moore. Uh, he was born here in 1914. Lived to be a pretty old guy, died around Christmas time in 1999. I remember that being a big deal in the newspapers here in Chicago. Uh, he starts out as a child circus performer and becomes an incredibly talented stuntman. And that's his way into movies. He's a stuntman. He gets big bit parts in cowboy movies. He gets the Lone Ranger job because he looks good in the mask and the hat. The guy is such a dashing, strapping, whatever you want to call it, 1940s good-looking guy that you can put a mask and a hat on him, and he's still a good-looking guy. And then there's the voice. When Clayton Moore in the Lone Ranger character speaks, you just know the voice right away. Um, maybe folks under 40, not so much, but it's just something that really gets into you. I didn't say gun crater. I said face him. So you can face yourself and your job. Yeah. Fellow doesn't want to have to shave in the dark all his life. You know, Buck, there are many kinds of death. And they're all better than running away and dying slowly from the inside. The final season was the only one they did in color. And um, for one of the seasons, because of a salary dispute, a guy named John Hart takes over the role those episodes suck. Don't even bother. Uh, and the guy has this little Weasley voice. It's pretty much Tonto and some white guy who follows him around that season. They did realize their mistake. Clayton Moore comes back. His salary demands are met. The show goes off the air in 1956, but right away they kick out the Lone Ranger movie in 1956, a feature length in color. And then in 1958, the Lone Ranger and the lost city of gold because if you're doing cowboy stories eventually you're going to come up to that lost city of gold myth and it does make for a good western story so that's 1958 uh, through the 60s clayton moore continues to do public appearances comic conventions things like that in characters the lone ranger 
1981, the company that owns the rights to the character takes Clayton Moore to court because they want to revive the story and make a new movie with a young, new Lone Ranger. And Clayton Moore's been running around in the mask in the outfit doing appearances. They take him to court and they try to force him to stop doing that. And you don't go. A mask of an old Lone Ranger and you don't mess around with Jim. I don't do that. The outfit at least wear dark sunglasses, but not the mask. And again, the show went off the air in 1956. The last movie was in 1958. And in 1981, public support for Clayton Moore being allowed to wear the outfit, play the character, and do the public appearances is so huge that the movie that they do put out in 1981 is a horrible flop, loses tons of money. They try this again in 2013. Johnny Depp plays Tonto. Still trying to get my head around that one. That movie is also a huge disappointment, a flop. It sucks. The Lone Ranger is one of those weird things where only one guy has been able to successfully do it. Every time they've tried to bring back the character in a movie or in any fashion, it's been a failure. Characters of this similar era, mostly Zorro. Out of the night, when the moon is bright, comes a horseman known as Zorro. This bold renegade carves a sea with his blade, a sea that stands for Zorro. And, of course, Batman, who started in the 1930s. Both those characters, and Batman a lot more so, have been able to come back in very successful revivals, mostly in film. So what was it about the Lone Ranger? What was it about Clayton Moore that really leaves him stuck in that time period? Again, they've tried a few times. No one else has been able to pull it off. The Lone Ranger. tell overture has nothing to do with the lone ranger has nothing to do with the old west it is a piece of an opera written in 1829 by rossini but you know what it sounds cool and nowadays we don't think of rossini we think of that's music to drive or ride really fast to you know and we've got a clip of it here for you we all know it we all love it it's you know, it's not the William Tell Overture anymore. It's the Lone Ranger music. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. The Lone Ranger rides again. TV series debuts in 1949. It runs for five seasons of new episodes. 
the final season is the only one that is filmed in color. Uh, there is also one season of episodes where Clayton Moore was having a dispute with the studio and was replaced by John Hart. He's not even big enough to really fill out the suit. He does not have that incredible low voice that Clayton Moore has. Um, he's just kind of a guy that they threw in there. And after one season of that, Clayton Moore comes back to the role. Again, that fifth and final season is uh, the one that's filmed in color. Yeah, this is one of those shows that was a pretty big part of my childhood. Uh, although the show had been off the air for, well, I guess over a decade and a half by the time I was born, it was still in reruns. It was still something you could see fairly regularly. Uh, it was part of the Saturday TV lineup for a while uh, in Midland. And it's just one of those shows that never lost its luster. Now, there's a few reasons that this could be possible. Of course, one of the most prominent reasons could be the fact that at the time, there were only three networks. You know, these days we kind of think about entertainment as being the kind of thing you can watch whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, because it's going to be on a streaming service or you're going to be able to find episodes online or buy the DVDs or whatever it is you want to do. But at the time of this show and for decades afterward, there were really only three networks that you could regularly see things on television. Uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Of course, they're all still around. So there was something of a captive audience aspect of things. That goes for sure. But why aren't some of these other shows in constant reruns or constantly talked about? Why aren't we talking about Hopalong Cassidy? Why don't we talk constantly about Branded? Why don't those things stay in the cultural mindset? Well, in my opinion, it's just because of who the Lone Ranger was. I mean, you're right. When you would hear Clayton Moore speak, you knew who it was. He didn't need the mask and you could have recognized him. I can't really think of anyone else you could say that about. I didn't even know there was another guy who played the Lone Ranger because the network ultimately acknowledged that that was such a mistake that they buried those episodes until the 80s. So when I was growing up and watching this show, you know, in reruns in the late 70s, early 80s, there was no clue that there was somebody else who they actually brought in it for a season to play the part. Something that I find truly interesting about the production of the show is how they would produce these extremely long seasons and then reshow every episode prior to, you know, filming. One of the things that I find extremely interesting here is how they would produce these very long seasons and then they would reshow the entire season prior to beginning production on new episodes, or at least prior to releasing new episodes. Now we think of that kind of in the modern eighties, nineties, early two thousands TV era as there's going to be 26 episodes of a show. And then there's going to be 26 reruns and that'll take you through the entire year. But the first season of the lone ranger 
There were 78 episodes that were produced and broadcast over 78 consecutive weeks. They were then shown again before anything new was shown. Once the follow-up seasons were made, they would film 52 episodes, show those in 52 weeks, and then re-show those over the next 52 weeks. So this is why you have a show that only lasted for five seasons and yet was on the air for over eight years. It's because it was a commonplace thing for them to film an, uh, an incredibly long season and then re-show that incredibly long season before beginning work on the next. As to why we have abject failure on the post-Clayton Moore Lone Ranger, I mean, again, you can only speculate when it comes to stuff like this. But if you go back and watch any of the original series, and by the way, folks, just so you know, these are all out there to be seen for free on Tubi. That's T-U-B-I. It's one of the streaming services uh, that you can watch all kinds of free stuff on. I believe it's only the first season that's on there. But in any case, uh, you can go watch these without having to pay for anything. When you watch these episodes, what you're going to see is the, the hero, the archetypal hero and his sidekick. They're going to come in and save the day. And then they're going to leave without waiting for so much as a thank you. It's not a big overproduced. You know, we want everyone to know we're the good guys. Please heap your praises on us. Please pat us on the back. We need your adulation. They're just there, and then they're gone. Hey, who was the fellow that pulled me out? I'd sure like to shake his hand. Hey, that's a funny thing. We don't know just who he was. He had a blanket around him. Yeah, and there was an Indian helping him. An Indian, huh? I know who it was. It was your friend and mine. That was a Lone Ranger. It's it's what the A-team becomes in the 80s. They show up, they help you, they're gone before you get a chance to say thanks. It's the exact same concept, but it's pioneered here. If you watch any of the, well, I guess I should say either of the two flops, you get something that seems more intended to be a slickly produced, high budget, let's rally around the campfire of yesteryear, and essentially rape the corpse of what was a great show to try and ring up a few dollars. And I just think the public doesn't buy it. I think the truth is that fans of a show or fans of a series can see through these sorts of attempts. And that's exactly what this was. It was just a blatant cash grab. And I feel particularly good about the fact that neither of them succeeded. I mean, on the one hand, it would be really cool to have modern day Lone Ranger stories, but this is one of the few instances in which I really think that you wouldn't be adding to the legacy of the show. You could only detract. There is no one who could play the Lone Ranger the way Clayton Moore did. You know, Jay Thomas used to go on the Dave Letterman show at, at pretty much annually, and he would do a bit about his time of driving the Lone Ranger around after a gig opening a car lot. All right, let's get right to it, Jay. Yeah. Paint the word picture for us. Um, years ago, uh, when I was a disc jockey in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, 
we would open uh, all sorts of places, and I used to help open car dealerships and have the remote and give stuff out and T-shirts and all that. <laughs> the Lone Ranger was working for uh, the Chrysler Corporation, Dodge, and he was the spokesman. So he had come to Charlotte to open up the, the, the dealership, and I was going to be the disc jockey. And you say it was Clayton Moore was Clayton the actor. Moore, the Lone Ranger. But it, later in his career, he really thought he might be the Lone Ranger. Yes. <laughs> he, he stood very erect at all times. He wore the mask at all times. He had the six guns. And he really didn't deal with you other than as the Lone Ranger, right? right? Well, when he's there and the little kids went over to him, my friend, uh, Mike Martin, who is a record promoter with, with long, crazy hair, while the kids were busy over here, he and I went behind the dumpster and we herbed up. <laughs> so we... So we herbed up. All of a sudden, the promotion ends, we're getting ready to leave, and uh, uh, the car doesn't come for the Lone Ranger. And so you can imagine this. You have these two baked stoner hippie types who are driving around the Lone Ranger. What could possibly go wrong? Now imagine you're the driver of the other car. You get out to go scream at these two long hair weirdos and what happens? So he's standing very erect with the mask and the six guns and no one's dealing with him. And I say, gee, Mike, you know, we, uh, we need to get him home somehow. He's, he's got to get back to the he's hotel or the airport. He's got to get back to the red carpet yeah. inn at, right. uh, on, on Moorhead <laughs> Street. So I say, um, uh, Mr. Lone Ranger, uh, would you like us to take you? And he goes, you know, yes, I have this old beat up Volvo. Mm. And so uh, we get the Lone Ranger dressed in the whole regalia in the back of my beat up Volvo. And we are trying not to act stoned as we get into the front <laughs> of the Volvo. And so we are driving on Independence Boulevard. It's 5 o'clock. There's not a sound in that car. And we are, we are just sitting like this. All of a sudden, the guy decides to back up to get out of the traffic. And he smashes right into my car. And I can, I can hear the headlight break. Oh. So the Lone Ranger's in the back. I floor the Volvo. <laughs> And as we were chasing him, and I, Mike reminded me of this, whichever way we went, the Lone Ranger went in the opposite uh, direction. Yeah. What, what, it's a matter of physics, I, I don't guess. Know why. I don't know. He yeah. was braced and we weren't uh -huh. braced. No. So we are chasing this huge Buick through the streets of Charlotte, mm. North Carolina, right. to try and, and, and catch the guy. Did you right? finally catch up with the we guy? We did catch up with the with And you broke my headlights. Well, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to call the cops. Oh, really? Who are they going to believe? Me? Well, you two hippie freaks. They'll believe me, citizen. I didn't know it was you. <laughs> that's the greatest story of all time. Yeah, you know, Chris, one, that's a hilarious story. To David Letterman, when he had his show, uh, whether it was Johnny Cash and June Carter or Waylon and Willie, Patsy Montana, uh, and with the Lone Ranger story, I mean, the guy just clearly was a big fan of this type of music and did a lot to use his show to, to talk about these people and these stories. It remains a real mystery with this, you know, why Clayton Moore... And they haven't been able to, to find anybody else to pull this off. If you look at the James Bond character. 
to a lot of people, there's Sean Connery and then there's a bunch of guys, but really they've had several people pull off that role and do a really great job with it. Uh, the first Pierce Brosnan one is very good and Daniel Craig did a nice job. With Doctor Who, you've had over a dozen different people. And for the most part, they've been successful in carrying on that character. Oh, they call me the Doctor. Now, this is Zoe, Jamie, and I'm the Doctor. How do you do? I'm the Doctor. I'm the Doctor. You may be a Doctor, but I'm the Doctor. The definite article, you might say. I'm the Doctor. Are you in charge here? I am known as the Doctor. Ah, oh, now we're getting somewhere. Um, I'm the Doctor. I'm the I am the Doctor! I'm the Doctor, by the way. What's your name? I'm the, I'm the Doctor, by the way. If anyone's interested. Hello, I'm the Doctor. I'm the Doctor, and I save people. I'm the Doctor. These are my friends. With Batman, that's another one where, like James Bond, people are like, well, who's your favorite Batman? Good afternoon, Mr. Glee. I'm Batman. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Hi, Freeze. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. Really? You're ahead of Bale? The man who personified the words, I'm Batman. <laughs> I never had to say I'm Batman. I showed up. People knew I was Batman. Uh, and the Lone Ranger, again, it's just one guy. It's one guy and his faithful Indian companion. We mentioned sidekicks. One of the top all-time sidekicks ever is always going to be Tonto, the Lone Ranger's Indian sidekick, the brilliant Jay Silverheels. Uh, born in Canada in 1912. He's an Ontario native. He's uh, in pure Indian. His claim to fame, aside from acting, was as a Hall of Fame lacrosse player in Canada, and he used a lot of his TV money to get into the horse breeding business to raise and breed and, and sell horses. His post-Lone Ranger career is mostly his Canadian fame as a lacrosse player and his uh, business in the horse industry. He comes back uh, years later and does a nice interview on Johnny Carson's show in character as Tonto. And it's basically playing to all those jokes of, yeah, I was doing all the work and the other guy was riding around getting all the credit for it. Uh, it's hilarious. It's Jay Silverheels obviously having a very good natured sense of humor about the one television character he's known for. Uh, but really the ultimate sidekick and just a cool guy overall i really chris you know if we're gonna have somebody follow us around and you can't get chewbacca who else are you gonna get except tonto i do think that tonto in many ways is the ultimate sidekick you know what's interesting is i've been going back and re-watching uh episodes of the show you you can't help but look through it with a more modern day lens and say well okay these days, we would never allow this kind of thing on TV where you have a Native American essentially speaking in broken English to pander to an audience that would 
I guess, expect that from what their perceptions would be at the time. So I, I don't think you would see that kind of a character on today's TV. And yet, Jay Silverheels pulls this off in a manner in which it doesn't come off as pandering. Like he's he understands, I guess I should say Tonto understands his role in all of this. You know, yes, he is there to support the Lone Ranger, but the on-screen chemistry between Jay Silverheels and Clayton Moore is not such so that Clayton Moore seems to be depending on Tonto to boost the Lone Ranger character. He kind of views him as more of an equal, and it comes off very nicely in the show. I, I can't think of a single scene in that I've watched where the Lone Ranger talks down to Tonto in any fashion. He, it's it. What it reminds me of is Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. So for anyone who may not be familiar with this story, uh, Edmund, Sir Edmund Hillary is the is presumed to be the first person to have climbed Mount Everest. Tenzing Norgay was his Sherpa guide. Now, Tenzing's job was to get Edmund Hillary up the slopes of Mount Everest and allow him to be the first person to step on the summit. At the time and since, they've both, they both spent their latter years saying that they took that step together. And if you go back and you listen to old interviews of Edmund Hillary, he never talks down or speaks as, him, as himself as a superior to Tenzing Norgay. And to me, that's kind of what you have here with the Lone Ranger and Tonto. The rest of the world would absolutely see Tonto as the sidekick, as not the equal to and yet the Lone Ranger himself just seems to think of Tonto as his right hand, someone else who can help him get the job done. Making the world better. The common element between the Gene Autry uh, persona and the Lone Ranger is what Autry widely publicized as the cowboy code. Uh, the Lone Ranger character has a similar published code that went along with, with that program. Uh, the gist of the code... Autry lists is kind of like, I think, 10 steps. Um, but the gist of the code is always be kind, always be honest, do not shoot first. Only the cowboy only shoots in self-defense or to save others. The cowboy code also includes speaking out against racial and religious intolerance and in the Lone Ranger Code, it specifically mentions pursuing a course of action that serves the greatest amount of people. Both characters are propped up by a very publicized code of behavior that revolves around be kind, be compassionate, show respect, and only act in self-defense. Um, it's a great way to look at the world. Hopefully, more times than not, it actually works out that way. Well, folks, between the Lone Ranger establishing itself as a TV phenomenon in the early 50s, and then through the 60s, we'll have Gunsmoke. Well, uh, there's a ton of these shows. The, the point here is the list 
of actors that get their start playing bit parts in Western TV shows and then go on to be huge stars, either in other television programs or in film. We have folks like Charles Bronson, Lee Van Cleef, DeForest Kelly, who becomes famous as Dr. Bones McCoy in Star Trek, Burt Reynolds, Dennis Hopper, James Gardner, Robert Vaughn, who goes on to be very popular in the Man from Uncle TV show. We get Jack Klugman, Harry Dean Stanton, Harrison Ford, Leonard Nimoy, and we also get Gene Arthur, Ed Asner, Cloris Leachman, and a young Mark Alamo, who later turns up in Star Trek Deep Space Nine as a Cardassian villain named Dukat. Uh, these are all folks that get started in cowboy movies, Western TV shows, and uh, quite a few of them wound up doing science fiction later on. And with Bronson, you know, Charles Bronson becomes the big action movie star in the era before anybody ever knew who Arnold Schwarzenegger was. Bronson was really the original of that type of character. And these are all folks that appeared in a lot of different Western TV shows as they were coming up as performers. One of the most notable series from this era is Gunsmoke. It is a radio program from 1952 to 1961. It is a TV program for six 135 episodes between 1955 and 1975. It took long, long running programs like The Simpsons and in England, Doctor Who to get into a 20 year, 635 episode run and then to surpass that. It's rare air to be in, and Gunsmoke was the first program to do that. This is a lot more of an adult drama, soap opera type program. It's set in Dodge City, Kansas in the late 1870s. Kansas had just become a state before the Civil War in 1861. Kansas in the late 1870s is in the middle of Reconstruction, you have towns growing up, but you still have a lot of ranchers and farmers. That's kind of the cultural background. That idea we talked about earlier with the character of a doctor being sort of the old wizard wise type guy in town. In Gunsmoke, for all the 20 years, you get Milburn Stone, great character actor, playing Doc Adams. And for 19 of those 20 years, as the beautiful woman behind the bar running the Long Branch Saloon and occasionally kissing Marshall Dillon, we have the great Amanda Blake as Miss Kitty and the man himself. He's not the greatest actor. He's kind of a budget version of John Wayne, but Minnesota native, and this is the key quality here, six foot seven inch tall, James Arness gets the role of U.S. Marshal Matthew Dillon. I try to remember that if they'd argued a little, they might not be here. Arguing doesn't fill any graves. Take me, I'm a U.S. Marshal. How many times I'd rather have argued than gone for guns? It's his show. He's the hero. Uh, James Arness, the actor, is the big brother of Peter Graves, who goes on to have 
great success in a show called Mission Impossible in the 1960s and 70s. Gunsmoke, Dodge City is kind of the world where all this exists, and you have Miss Kitty and you have Doc Adams. Marshall Dillon, Matthew is, you know, the lead figure. They're kind of the big three characters. From 1955 to 1964, the sidekick is Dennis Weaver, uh, who will go on to have TV fame in the 1970s as McLeod, uh, plays a character named Chester. He's a guy with a limp. He's the deputy. He's the sidekick to Marshall Dillon. Between 1962 and 1965, we get a young up-and-coming Burt Reynolds as the sidekick. He plays a character named Quint. And then the guy who really becomes the most well-known of the Gunsmoke, Marshall Dillon sidekicks, we get Ken Curtis, who is a country singer, side actor. He was in a lot of the John Ford westerns. He's a character named Festus, and he's in the role from 1964 to 1975. I told you to get rid of that hooch now, and I mean it. You ain't going to go out there with your... Booze Paul put me down on the ground and he said, let's see if he's going to kick like a mule or run like a rabbit. What'd you do? I bit him. That's what I done. Bit him right on the ankle. And he's the guy that's kind of running around behind the scenes all the time going, Matthew, Matthew. And then Marshall Dillon comes out and does whatever the Marshall needs to do. But You know something, Jimmy? A fuller had an order to run from nothing because a man just can't get nothing dead that way. You know that? Anything happens to Matthew out, Chunder, you better make sure that I'm stretched out right beside him because if I ain't, I'm going to get after you like thunder after lightning. I'll take oath on that. Yeah, uh, Festus is kind of the the town crier, for lack of a better term. They're morality stories. Some people think I'm too soft with Front Street, and some people think I'm too tough. But that's the way it is in every town. If a peace officer does his job right, he pleases nobody. And Judge, I want you to hear me out, and I want you to listen carefully to what I say. Pruitt Dover's not the kind of man who could kill anybody in cold blood, drunk or sober. Any man who'd offer his life for another one the way he did for me is incapable of killing intentionally. Any more than he could have left me out on that prairie to die. Now I'm asking you to temper justice with mercy. Very often there is a person who is wrongly accused. Marshal Dillon will help them clear their name. There's somebody who has actually done wrong. Marshal Dillon is either going to shoot them in self-defense or drag their guilty ass back into town for a hanging. Well, I think it comes down to the fact that, like you mentioned, this was a show that was on for 20 years. And these days, you can kind of go back and find quite a few shows that have been on for 20 years, not not counting soap operas, of course. But at the time, that was just a legendary, groundbreaking thing. I mean, like you said, it took shows like The Simpsons and Doctor Who to knock it out. But... If you go look at the shows that have been on for 20 plus years now, there's a lot of them, whether it's Family Guy or Law and Order or Law and Order spinoffs or South Park. There's a lot of shows now that have been on for this length of time. But at the, at the time that Gunsmoke was running, this was just absolutely 
different, unique. Now, you mentioned the word morality when you were speaking about the show, and that's a very accurate description. These are morality plays. You know, it's the hate a man carries that destroys him. It's not the bullets. Hate can twist and sicken him till he's no good to anybody. It's always good guy meets bad guy. Good guy stands up against bad guy. And it follows that cowboy code. Marshall Dillon doesn't shoot first. In fact, he generally tries not to shoot at all. But, of course, with the title like Gunsmoke, he's going to wind up shooting someone. It's right there in the name. Now, you mentioned The Simpsons, and I mentioned The Simpsons. And I remember hearing an interview with Kelsey Grammer. I don't remember which late night show it was on, but it was on Letterman or Leno or someone. And this was when he was pretty deep into the run on Frasier. And he actually mentioned that his goal was he wanted to get 21 years of playing Frasier Crane under his belt because he was going for James Arness's record of having played the same character for 20 seasons, uh, being Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke. Interestingly, while Grammer didn't actually reach that milestone with Frazier, he has been playing Sideshow Bob for more than 30 years on The Simpsons at this point. Granted, that's a bit character. It's not in every episode. He, he appears here and there. Um, but I just thought that was kind of an amusing tie-in to what we've been talking about. The reason the show continues to resonate to this day, uh, at least in my opinion, has to do with two factors. The first is that you have continuing character development. And the second is that the episodes work really well as standalone episodes. So you can watch a whole bunch of episodes and you'll see how the characters continue to grow and develop to change their relationships, you know, between themselves to grow as individuals, to grow in their careers. And yet you can watch any of the episodes as its own thing. And it's a, a complete and perfect story as a standalone. So it's nice. You know, if you watch a show today, so many shows count on these expanded story arcs where you kind of have to watch the entire season in order for it to truly make sense. At the time, that just wasn't how television worked. And I think that's what helps some of these older shows kind of stay in the mind's eye of the public. You can go watch anything. You can go watch an episode of The Rifleman. You can go watch Gilligan's Island, for that matter. It doesn't matter. Anything you want to watch, you can watch one episode and get a complete story top to bottom. You know, Chris, that whole idea of the morality play that's a real common thread through these shows. There are very kind of common types of characters and we just get variations on those. You have with somebody like Marshall Dillon or with the Gene Autry character, you have kind of a paternal, a, a father-like figure to the town or to the environment that they exist in with Bonanza and the rifleman. You have the widowed father who is trying to have a ranch, in both cases, raise a son or multiple sons, and to kind of navigate that world as a single dad uh, with a ranch, trying to raise your kids. 
the other character type that you get is the benevolent vigilante, uh, the Lone Ranger, Zorro. Um, in the TV era, you have Have Gun, Will Travel, and then the, the really big benevolent vigilante type in the early TV era is going to be Steve McQueen with Wanted Dead or Alive. He plays a bounty hunter with a heart of gold. Half the episodes, he's not catching the bad guy. He's proving that the wrongly accused person is, in fact, innocent. And then you kind of get the lovable loser, gambler, heart of gold type character. That would be what James Gardner brings in the Maverick stories. Um, So you have a few kind of basic character types. There are... You know, of course, with anything where there's a, a ton of product made, you're going to get some clunkers. But Marshall Dillon, the Lone Ranger, what Steve McQueen brings to Wanted Dead or Alive, what Lauren Green brings to Bonanza, it's Chuck Connors in um, The Rifleman. It, these guys really stand out because they're good actors and they're good storytellers. And the chemistry that they have with the other performers in their shows, uh, you know, again, Gunsmoke, you know, Miss Kitty, Doc Adams, Festus, Chester, these are characters that endure um, in any part of entertainment when you have a a big saturation in a genre. There's going to be a lot of clunkers, and then there's going to be those really nice golden ones that stick out. We don't talk a lot about Herman's Hermits or Freddy and the Dreamers because we're too busy talking about the Beatles and the Kinks. In this world of Western TV shows, it's the same thing. There's the great stuff that years later we're still enjoying and talking about, and then there's the stuff that came and went. Um, I really hope that listeners have enjoyed going through this with us. It's great classic American storytelling. Drifting along with a tumbling tumbleweed, I know when night has gone that a new world's born at dawn. Keep rolling. Before we leave, I do want to say one final thought on Gunsmoke. CBS, you can bite me. CBS had this habit of canceling shows that were popular while they were canceled without ever allowing them a proper goodbye. Gunsmoke, a show that ran for 20 years, a show that literally multiple generations were raised on, canceled without a word of warning to the cast, no indication. No hint, no let's get them back together and do one final ride into the sunset. Nope, just canceled. CBS, what the hell, man? I'd also like to say that you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sixstringhayride. Once again, the six is spelled out, and that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. And lastly, look us up on Facebook six string hayride like and follow our page you're going to see a lot of clips that we put on there from the things we talk about on the episodes you're going to see things that go on there just 
that caught our fancy at the time, you're always going to enjoy what you see on our Facebook page. And if you don't, well, you have our email address. How about some more beans, Mr. Taggart? I'd say you've had enough. I understand there's a new sheriff in town. Who wants to kill him? This recipe is from Sarah Evans. It's for her mama's chili. This makes six servings. The hands-on time is 20 minutes. The total time is one hour and 15 minutes. For this recipe, you'll need one pound ground beef, one medium-sized yellow onion chopped, one 1.25-ounce packet of taco seasoning, a quarter cup of brown sugar, one 28-ounce can of crushed tomatoes, one 16-ounce can of tomato sauce, one 10 and 3 quarter ounce can of tomato soup, one 16-ounce can of chili beans, one 16-ounce can of pork and beans, and the toppings you'll want here are shredded cheddar cheese and chopped green onions. To make this recipe, cook ground beef and onion in a Dutch oven over medium heat, stirring until meat crumbles and is no longer pink. Drain, return beef mixture to Dutch oven. Add taco seasoning to meat mixture, cook over medium heat, stirring constantly for two minutes. Stir in brown sugar and next three ingredients and bring to a boil. Reduce heat to medium-low and simmer, stirring occasionally for 30 minutes. Next, you'll add beans and simmer, stirring occasionally for 15 minutes or until thoroughly heated. Serve with the desired toppings. For this dish, the testers at Southern Living prepared it using McCormick's original taco seasoning mix and Bush's chili beans. Well, folks, time to call a night. Do what you feel and keep both feet on the wheel. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So till next time. Move them on. Hit them up. Hit them up. Move them on. Move them on. Hit them up. Raw hide. Cut them out. Run them in. Run them in. Cut them out. Cut them out. Right up in Like always, if you have favorite memories of these types of stories, email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. If you have any great recommendations for shows or music, or you want to put some of these clips up, you can come by Facebook, Six String Hayride, and see us there. And thanks again. It's been a hell of a ride, folks. Whoopie tie, I oh, rocking to and fro, back in the saddle again. Whoopie-tie-eye-yay, I go my way, back in the saddle again. You know, the first time I took a job as a hired gun, a fellow told me, Vin, you can't afford to care. There's your problem. One thing I don't need is somebody telling me my problem. Like I said before, that's your problem. You got involved in this village and the people in it. You ever get tired of hearing yourself talk? The reason I understand your problem so well is that I walk in the same trap myself. Yeah. First day we got here, I started thinking. Maybe I could put my gun away, settle down, get a little land, raise some cattle. 
things that these people know about me, my credit wouldn't work against me. I just didn't want you to think you were the only sucker in town. Thank you.